Hello. After an unexpectedly long hiatus, I'm back with the eighth installment of the Fairy and Fantasy class. My apologies for this delay. It started with a bit of an editing backlog, then I went away for spring break, during which I didn't have a reliable internet connection, and then I got sick and lost my voice. In any case, I now have several episodes waiting for you, and starting today, I'll be posting an episode a day for as long as I can. So let's get down to business. Today, we turn to the wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall, the first of our two loathly lady stories. Okay, good morning. So, on to our third fairy story, uh, Dame Ragnall. We start... I hope everyone was braced for this surprise in the forest, right? Uh, and what's more, hunting again. Now, we didn't do any hunting in uh, Landfall, but we, you know, we, 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 well, at least we were spectators to hunting. Orfeo himself didn't do much hunting, but the fairies did. Anyway, so here we see uh, Arthur hunting, and we have a, a fairly realistic depiction of it that is uh, with uh, some attention to detail his his measuring the fat of the deer that he catches and everything and his very careful woodmanly I love that adverb woodmanly sneaking up on the deer and and uh, it's uh, it's it's all it's all very good but of course once he separates himself away from everybody else and is now deep in the woods by himself he has a mysterious encounter now in what ways does this meet our expectations, and in what ways are we... Because we've now, I would suppose, are building some expectations based on the things we've already seen. In what ways are our expectations met, and in what ways are they uh, disappointed by the beginning of this? <coughs> what do you think? What, what struck you? Mac? Uh, one of the ways in which the beginning of the story kind of uh, inverted the expectations that you would have going Sort of thing. King Arthur breaks though. Yes, really weird. It did seem weird, and even weirder. I mean, I, I don't know. I went back and read that a couple times because I, I was like, I must be missing something here, because he so carefully says, "No, I mustn't break my oath." And going is like, "But I'll be really true." And he's like, "Okay, okay." I mean, it really sounds like Arthur's saying the kind of thing that modern people say. It's like, this is, I'm not supposed to tell anybody. So if the person that you're going to tell says that they won't tell anybody, then it counts as not telling anybody, right? <laughs> and that seems to be actually the logic that Arthur employs. In fact, because he even relates to him very carefully. And I swore a solemn oath never to tell anybody else the thing that I have just finished telling you. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, and neither he nor Gawain seem to have any kind of hesitation about this and i and i'm honestly not sure what to do with it i'm honestly not sure whether or not that uh we're supposed to be responding to that by saying ah mm, look arthur and gawain both neither of them you know, we've been breaking vows this is bad or whether we're supposed to take the cue from how little they seem to care or be bothered by this and we're not supposed to care or be bothered either i'm really not sure where we're supposed to go there um Though, though I want to back up one step. Uh, more to his encounter, which I don't know that it'll help us a whole lot. I still don't feel like I understand that, so I don't know how much it will help us to, to, to understand it, but maybe, maybe something. So I'm going to go back to his, his encounter with the knight at the beginning. Well, the, the fellow with the rhyming sing-song name is not actually an agent fairy. <clears throat> yes. When the whole setup seems to be running more or less like we would have expected, right? Arthur, deep in the woods, now separated from anybody else. Suddenly, a mysterious, strange, you know, a, a, a quaint guy appears. Like, there's something strange about him. And we're like, ah, okay, I, let's see. Wait, 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 let me guess. Uh, something about him is bright, shining, maybe made out of gems. I'm guessing his armor is going to be really rich and, you know, like maybe gilded or something. And, but no. Right? No, it seems that he's just a guy. And his complaint, and even again the whole sort of context of now I have you in my power and you must agree to do what I ask you to do, it's, I mean, there's some obvious differences between that and the fairy king's approach to Herodias in Orfeo, but I mean, there are certain parallels too. Now you have come into my domain, you're in my power, and you must do this thing. Except the guy himself 
doesn't show any obvious signs of being a fairy. And his complaint about Arthur is a perfectly mundane one. Why is he, why is he anti-Arthur? What's the problem? John, do you remember? Yeah, he, he was talking about how Arthur gave his, his own land to Sir Gawain. Yeah, he has a, a perfectly sort of normal political complaint. Like, that, in your role as king and feudal overlord, you have done an injustice, right? You have given lands which should belong to me, to Sir Gawain, and I've tried to get your attention to get you to redress this, but now I've got you, right? So now I'm going to either punish you for doing this to me or compel you to redress the wrong that you've done against me. Nothing abnormal about that. Nothing particularly magical about this context. So, I mean, we have exactly the setup we would expect, and then it seems not quite the follow-through. Is there anything about him, the guy, or about their encounter, other than that woodland solitary setting, which does seem a little bit not normal human interaction? Taylor? Um, his, uh, the deal he makes with Arthur, the what women want most question, you read that and you're just like, why? Yeah, that's not normal. It seems. I agree. That's one of the things. I mean, like, I'm going to send you on this quest to find this, you know, arcane information. And if you can find uh, this. I mean, it's not that it's, like, necessarily magical. I mean, you can imagine it saying, like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on a quest, you know, with a kind of... And, and one, one can easily hear, potentially anyway, a kind of jocular almost like locker room, uh, uh, masculine uh, elbow-nudging humor in the request, right? Ah, I shall send you to find... I shall shall think of of an impossible quest to send you upon, a piece of information which I will know for a fact you can never find. Get women to agree on what they most want. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Since we all know that women can never make up their minds about anything and have all of these undisciplined desires for all of these things, therefore, I have set you this impossible task. Uh, ha, 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 ha. And, you know, and all the men in the audience are like, ha, 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 ha. Right? So, I mean, it's, that's... So you can see that in a mundane life, but, but I still agree with you, Taylor. There is something about that that doesn't... He sounds like... You know, the guy who was passed over at, you know, the appeals court, now, like, taking justice into his own hands when he sees the opportunity. It's all, you know, perfectly. But then this, okay, so why why I'm going to send you on a quest and you have a year and a day to do this? Suddenly it does start to sound a little fairy tale right there. Um, What else? Jordan? There's a lot about this conversation that seems, if not, you know, definitely not logical. I'm not sure it's quite fairy tale but I'm like... Okay, I have you in my power. I can smite you, but I'm not on you. Get no glory from smiting down on that man. It'll be, you know, it'll be shame. I'm not a, not a lucky record. I said, okay, fine. Come back to you today with no arms, no arms, like smiting you down on the same man. Though, though, see, then he would be yielding himself to him, like for execution, rather than just like taking advantage of the unarmed guy in the bushes, which is what Arthur is saying he would be doing. So, I mean, in 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 one way, of course, this is interesting that Arthur is. Appealing to his honor, right? I mean, that's, and it's his only appeal. Uh, it would be shameful for you to strike me down because I am unarmed and you are armed. And by the way, in medieval poems, whenever we say you're armed and I'm not, that means the armor that there were. He's not talking about weapons. He's talking about the, the, the armor. The heat. Arthur's dressed only in green. That is, you know, he's, 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 in, he's in hunting clothes uh, and the other guy is, is in full armor. So that's why it's unfair. And, the, and, and you're right, our seemingly non-fairy knight, agrees, yeah, you're right, you're right, I, I won't do that. So we see at least there is a, an appeal to some kind of shared value system between the two of them. That's, I, I think that's definitely interesting. What about his name? I mean, Kelly has alluded to it. <laughs> I mean, this guy has one of the coolest names in, like, any Arthurian story. It's a Gromer Sommerjour. Uh, can you piece out what it means? We had the word groma used as a common noun 
in fact, in the stanza in which he's introduced. He's called a quaint groma. It just means guy. It's one of those, as those of you who took Anglo-Saxon last semester will remember, there are scads of words in, that Middle English has inherited from Anglo-Saxon which just mean dude, right? Person, usually masculine, probably a warrior, but not necessarily, right? I mean, this, there, are, there, are, there are like 20 words for that in Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and Gromer is one of them that, 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 uh, that, that Middle English has, in, has, has inherited. So, uh, guy... Summer jour? Summer day. Summer day, yeah. I mean, his name is like, I, I am Mr. Summer Day. That's like, like the literal translation of his name. That's weird. I mean, it doesn't just sound funny to modern readers. That's a strange name. I am like the guy of Summer Day. What do you do with that? What do you make of that? What, Kat? I thought it sort of lended him a little bit of fairiness in the fact that we see fairies with summer and May, and he it, he may not be a fairy, but it sort of it sort of hints at enchantment. Yeah, no, I, I I think first of all, and I totally agree with Taylor. The whole quest thing, like this is start now, it's starting to smell like fairy. But his name is the thing I would point most to to say like this this is not just a normal guy. Like, his name. Is, is associated with the season in this way. The footnotes, I think, rightly point to an implication of, like, midsummer festival in the forest, uh, you know, something at least pagan, if not fairy. And, uh, I, yeah, I mean, those implications seem to be there. We certainly should remember, Kat, as you're reminding us, of the whole, the maying thing and, and, and uh, Herodotus under the imp tray and why she was there and the maying expedition that uh, she gets forcibly taken on by the... Uh, by the fairy knights and stuff. I mean, so yeah, I, his name does, I think, evoke all of those things. Now, but it's still not clear. It's not like we're left with any um, very obvious or definite sense that he is certainly a fairy or anything. But, but again, there's those are the elements which definitely sort of make it make it smell suspicious. Um, anyway, so Arthur's going back to court, but fortunately, Gawain has a plan. How adorable is Gawain's plan? <laughs> I mean, isn't that just so cute you could just pinch his cheek? I mean, he's like, okay, you go one direction, I'll go the other direction. And we'll ask everybody we see, and I love how he's just going to ask all, every man, women, and other that we meet. <laughs> what? Uh, okay, Gawain, good plan. So, like, what, what are they, like, pulling the livestock? I have no idea. But anyway, we're going to go with everybody, and, 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 and I love, like, their diaries, right? And we're going to bring a bokeh with us, right? And we'll all keep our book. And then he's coming back, and he's like, I've got a really big bokeh of suggestions for what women most like. And then just the most absolutely darling line in the whole poem is uh, when, they're, when they're comparing together, when they're compar- literally comparing notes, like they got their bokehs together, right? And they're looking at them, and Gawain's like, you've got a big bokeh, and I've got a big bokeh. This is great. We've got so much good material here, right? And he says in that line, which sounds like a line that someone would say in a movie right before a disastrous cut scene, right? Uh, you know, when, <laughs> when he says uh, in line 210, be that was the king common with his bokeh, and either on others' pamphlet did loca. This might not file us, said Gawain. <laughs> Cut to some catastrophic shot of, like, you know, Arthur in chains or something. But, uh, but yeah, this might not file us. We've totally got this. And he's so confident, and it's just, I, 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 I just, Gawain is so cute. Apart from cuteness, though, what do you notice about Gawain? And I think that, it, I mean, it's important because Gawain is interestingly not in any clear sense, the protagonist of this story. This is an Arthur story from the beginning and, and most of the way through, but yet it keeps coming back to Gawain, who seems at first an incidental character, like handy, devoted right-hand guy who, who is able to help Arthur out of his problem. But of course, when Ragnell comes and points to him, suddenly this becomes much more about him. So I think it's worth taking a little bit of time, as we did with Lanval, to say, what is... <coughs> What are the values here? He's being singled out as desirable. As Lanfal was, he's being singled out as desirable. That's the mortal that I want. Not in quite such glowing terms. We don't get the 
you know, the lovey-dovey exchange that we got between Lanfal and Truman. Oh, of all Christian men, you are the greatest. Oh, we don't get that about Gawain, but still there's sort of that implication. He's the one I've chosen, right? We don't see him nearly as much, so we don't have as much to judge by, but based on what we see, why? Why does he seem to stand out? What, again, seem to be the values that this story is emphasizing? What is it? Um, loyalty. Because Gawain is like, I will do anything for you. You're my king. I will marry someone to be as I'll die for you. I'll come up with a crazy plan to go ask her what I know. <laughs> right. And their pets. Yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. <laughs> loyalty, certainly. Um, his loyalty is clear and very highly emphasized. And yeah, his, I mean... The second cutest line in the poem has to be his response when Arthur comes back and is like, oh, I've had really bad news, right? You know, and Gwen's like, how did it go? Not good, right? <laughs> it's, it's really awful. Okay, I met this really ugly woman who said that she could save me, but you have to marry her. And his response? <laughs> is that all? That's great. Let's celebrate. His, he is so unhesitatingly enthusiastic about this. Um, and, and I certainly agree, Liz. It's his loyalty we see primarily. He obviously considers this a ludicrously small price to pay uh, for preserving the life of his lord. Um, there's not even a, like a, a pause or a, or, a, or, a, or a thought process there. Now, we, we may see one later, but there isn't in his initial reaction. He, never, he, he, he does not have to stop and do the math. He can do that math in his head really quickly, and he's fine with that. Yeah, Jordan? My lady, the single word somebody is failing me here, so I'm just going to describe it a little more with words. The willingness to take action. Like, I'd say assertiveness, but that has some other connotations. Yeah. So, at one point, why is Arthur so down? The Wayne asks, Arthur starts moping. The Wayne comes up with a plan. Arthur says, oh, this is terrible. I can't force you to do this. I won't do it. Yeah. No, I agree. Arthur is, it's, I mean, yeah, of course, it's hard to. It's always uh, hard to play the what would have happened if the story had been different uh, uh, <laughs> game. But clearly, Gawain is the one who, who initiates all the action. Um, and you're right. What would Arthur's response is first to mope. And if he's going to take action, it would have been much later. But you're right. Gawain is immediately, he's a, he's a problem solver, right? He's, uh, he's, he's decisive. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, sure. I think that we, and, and I think that that is, that is an important thing. He doesn't focus on, you know, these sorts of, well, he doesn't do the moping uh, that Arthur does. At least we haven't seen him do it yet. Um, but, anything else? Anything else you notice about Gawain? Okay. He's also, um, he has a good sense of ingenuity. Like, oh, we have to solve this riddle. Let's pretend that we're just asking around for fun. <laughs> See what everyone says. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just a little project, right? Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We're just uh, conducting a poll. Right. This would have been much easier to do had Facebook existed back then, right? But you know, we don't have to go around. I guess it still would have been hard to get people's pets. But uh, anyway. But yeah, it's it's. He is, and it's, of course, you know, one sort of hesitates to say that you know real, I mean, he's not showing flashes of genius in this poem, but yes, sort of resourcefulness, um, a certain amount of quickness of wit, and I think that kind of goes along with, that I think is a really good addition to what, um, to what Jordan was saying, because I think it's, so it's like, it's the quality of action that he takes, right? He's not just, uh, something needs to be done. Instead of moping, I shall leap into my horse and, like, ride somewhere in order to fight somebody or something like that. He doesn't just sort of charge off into action. His action is quick, but it is based on a sort of like, okay, um, I, you know, I, I, I see the problem here. I can think of what we should do. Let's go and do that. There is a resourcefulness attached to that. That is, it's, 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 it's intellect and not just oomph uh, associated with him. I think that that's true. Okay, our second encounter in the woods with a strange person whom we didn't expect to meet uh, again, we see things that we, some things that we might have expected and some things that probably we didn't expect, right? What are some things, again, in addition to the setting, alone by yourself in the middle of the forest, uh, wh what are other things which met expectations that we would, when he meets Dame Ragnall herself? 
She's riding an awesome horse. Yes. Yes, we have exactly the wealth we would expect to see. Um, and I agree. That, more so than the other guy, the setting prompted us to sort of expect probably a little more fairy than we got from, uh, from Mr. Summer Day. But here, some of what we see from her does exactly fulfill our expectation, right? Uh, jewels, precious metals, wealth and splendor beyond the expectation of mortals. So certainly, even if, uh, even if the opening sequence might have prompted us to like recalibrate our fairy detectors, this should set it off, right? You know, her, her, her apparel. But what's the problem? There are certain differences between her and Lady Triamore. <laughs> right? Uh, and as you can see, this is, uh, this is great fun. Uh, the only thing that a medieval romance writer likes better than a long, luxurious description of a beautiful woman is a long, even more luxurious description of a very ugly woman. Um, this, is, this is great sport. Um, uh, this is a sort of a, a, a subgenre of medieval romance that is the loathly lady stories, um, where some hideously, uh, 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 some of you, those of you uh, who took Arthurian literature might remember the random loathly lady who shows up in Cratian's Percival. Um, you know, like at one point they're like all gathered together in Arthur's court and everybody minding their own business, and then all of a sudden this hideous hag with tusks that like stick up past her eyebrows and, and everything. I mean, another really egregious <laughs> description of how horrifying she is shows up and tells them all to go on quests and everything and they're all like, yes, Miss Ugly Lady, we shall do that. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, and so in some sense, the, the level of her ugliness is actually sort of rise, it, th- there is a way in which her ugliness is as extraordinary as the beauty of Triamor. So extraordinary, so over the top, that it actually does kind of, it does not contradict, but actually even suggests the whole fairy thing. Normal, mortal women. Just as normal, mortal women cannot possibly be as beautiful as Lady Triamor, normal, mortal women cannot possibly be as ugly as Dame Ragnall. It, 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 it still kind of fits. Mac? Uh, something really odd I found about the introduction of Dan Ragnar is that after it describes her, you know, she's this really other woman who's really off the horse. Arthur kind of makes the same call to Barry Jenkins or Orpheo. It's just like, uh, well, what is it? There was an unstimulating suit. So, full of pleasure, we could measure to read the Sogali, you know, insure. It was no reason there. Yeah. She's so yeah. ugly. This is, this is unseemly. There's no reason or right for her to be doing this. Like that, that's, yeah. that, that weird aesthetic call is very, very. <coughs> yeah, I agree. We abs- I mean, I, I, I think uh, we have really good reason to be remembering that passage from the Fairy King. She and her horse are a sorry couple, <laughs> just like Orfeo and Herodias were. Um, uh, yeah, it doesn't fit, it doesn't work. And again, that should be some kind of hint. Something is odd here. Um, and notice the implications there. It's, remember when we were talking about Sir Orpheo, I think way back in the first Orpheo class, uh, we were talking about Herodotus and what makes Herodotus special and why possibly the fairy king might have been interested in her based on all the information that we had about her, which wasn't much. And one of the things that I emphasized was not only is she beautiful and not only is she dearly loved by her husband, she's also a queen. And that is sort of intrinsically important and kind of associated with the being exceptionally beautiful thing. Um, this is not a coincidence in medieval romances. Um, you just don't find queens who are kind of homely. It doesn't, uh, it almost never happens. Uh, And I don't think that this is a thing which is merely explicable by a kind of social presumption. That is, I think if we look at that and say, ah, see, this sort of demonstrates that 
The medieval person thought that people of the higher classes were therefore greater and above everybody else, and so therefore, uh, you know, the queen, who is the, the, the sort of socially highest person, must also therefore logically be the most beautiful, just as the king will be the most manly and the greatest warrior, and they believe that this is how it really worked. I, there were, I believe, ugly queens in the Middle Ages, and I believe this to have been a fact known to people. Um, it's not that they, re and goodness knows they knew that not all kings were actually the paragons of all like manliness and virtue. This is a literary trope, I think, not just a cultural assumption. Um, and I think that this is what we see acting here. It's like Arthur knows this trope. There is something just not fitting. Um, someone who is this high, this exalted, as exalted as the trappings of her horse suggests, should not look like that, certainly. Um, that, does, that doesn't fit. There's something not right there. Um, and it is. It's a little strange. Um, now, yeah, Christine, go ahead. I kind of saw that, that same pairing in the, or as he was saying with the Sir Orpheo, the pairing of um, Orpheo is like decrepit person with Herodas with a sort of mysterious um, sing or like selecting of um, circling just sort of like why yeah. and why Herodas yeah yeah no uh, there's and in both cases we get some we have some premise for guessing. Like we know that Herodias is very beautiful and very desirable. She seems, you know, to be a fine person and very pretty. So it's not like, oh, like totally counterintuitive why he would choose her. But we don't really know. We're not, we're not really told. And it's the same with Gawain. Gawain seems like a great guy. Um, but we don't, it, she has just singled him out. Um, and she is, in a sense, coming in and taking him, much less directly than the fairy king, right? I mean, she's not telling Arthur, in 24 hours, I shall swoop in and take Gawain from you and try and defend him as you like. You shall never be able to. I mean, it's a very different, but at the, she is coercing him. Um, she is saying, no, actually, you do have a choice. You can keep Gawain if you want, at the cost of your own life. You choose, right? And that's not even a choice. If Orfeo had been given that choice, boy, how happy would he have been, right? He, that's the choice he wanted to get. But he was denied that choice. Um, so it's, the parallels are different, but I, think, but I think they are important. And I think it's definitely worth, uh, worth thinking about. In a sense, we are kind of back in that, in that sort of world. This is that kind of story again, in a sense. This is, fairy is reaching in and pointing to a mortal who is good and worthy, it seems, and admirable in various ways. But for some reason, you. <laughs> like, I am tapping you. You are coming with us. Um, and that that dimension of it is, I agree, I think a very important part of this story. Jordan? Um, I think us dismissing the, the, the sign that she may not be a theory, may not be quite what, um, what we expected of theory, at least, is, is kind of a little misguided, because theories are about extremes and about appearance in many ways, and just <coughs> beauty is one side of that point, but ugliness is another, and I mean, like, all the ogres and hags of theory stories wouldn't exist if they wouldn't be the same if they were all, you know, handsome princes, so... Right. But they don't ride around on really nice horses. Um, and it, it's, it's the, but again, it's that disparateness that I think really does point to it. But, but you're right. She has a supernatural ugliness. I mean, it is, it, um, she is, you know, yeah, it surpasses, it surpasses all mortal foulness. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no mere mortal could attain such pinnacles of loathliness uh, as she has, apparently, for reasons best known to herself. Um, how does Arthur interpret her request? Okay, coming back, Christine, to your point. How does Arthur interpret her request to marry Gawain? What, is, what does he think she's looking for? Did you notice? He kind of gives it away. When he returns and says, okay. This is right around line 400. 
just a little bit before. Uh, line 396. Nua, said the king, sith it wall none other bay, tell me your answer, Nua, and me leafa savame. Gawain shall you wed. So he hath promised me, me leaf to save, and your desire anew shall ye have, both in boor and in bed. We can see how he's understanding this contract. His implication is that this is really, that this is sexually motivated, right? He clearly is interpreting her as basically being like, Mm, I'm going to get me a fine, young, strapping knight for my bed, who, because let's face it, he won't take me otherwise, but now I've got him right where I want him, and he's my little puppy now. Like, that's <laughs> his interpretation, right, of what is motivating her. And once, um, <coughs> and once um, she tells him the answer to the, to the riddle, I think that um, sheds light on why she wants Sir Gawain. Like, she wants um, power over, like, the best of men or the manliest of men, and that's why she's pointing him out. Like, obviously, he has these values. So, <coughs> as opposed to, like, the Sir Orpheus story, when we assume that there's a lot of focus on appearance, in this story, there's a lot of focus, I think, on virtuous beauty as opposed to physical. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. She contextualizes her request after the fact by the answer that she gives. In retrospect, one could almost say that her request was a hint. And it almost looks like that. But I think that's really only in retrospect. It's not like by her request you could really guess. Arthur clearly doesn't guess accurately uh, what it is that's motivating her. But... uh, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, we, we can clearly see her acting out what she, in the context of her answer to the question, of what she tells us is the right answer to the question, what she's asking for translates to give me what women most desire. Give me what I most desire. Um, because I'm a woman and all women desire this. I'm telling you that, right? Um, and so that, I, I agree. Those terms are really clear and it's really important for us to see that. And that should change our understanding of this. Now, it's possible for us still to sort of interpret that dirty. I mean, that is, we can still see this in a sexual... Uh, right, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's, that's sort of a bonus, but right, exactly. Um, no, 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 it's more than just that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I want to come back to that, uh, of course. I want to come back to the answer to the question. Uh, but I want to back up a little bit from there. Um, what are the answers... Uh, what's in Arthur and Gawain's books? You know, tell me the content. What have the, 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 the men and the women and the livestock told them that women the most desire? Yeah. Uh, some women like to, you know, to be richly dressed. Some women like, you know, sport in the bedchamber. Uh-huh. <laughs> some women want to be beautiful. Just a lot of different answers. Yes. Yes, the, 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 the final thing is some say it on or some say it other, right? I mean, they, they've got it. That's why they have these really thick books, right? Um, but the trend that we get is yeah, that th- some like really nice clothes, right? That's one thing that, that, that they hear that women like. Also, that they like to be, to be fired to prize it, right? It's, they like to be told nice things, right? They like to be complimented. Okay, okay, that seems plausible. And, and even the more ribald suggestion that they write down in their little books is still itself, I mean, it's certainly phrased politely, right? Some <laughs> say they love a lusty man that in their armies can clip them and kiss them then. They like a, you know, a, someone who is good at hugging and kissing. That's, you know, all perfectly above board with certainly implications. But, but again, it's... Compare that to her summary. That is not her final answer. But she, she leads up to her final answer, basically saying, not only, do I know, not only do I know the quest you've been put on, and not only do I know the correct answer 
to the question that you have been sent to find. I also know everything that's in your little bokets, too. I don't even need to read your pamphlets. I know what people have said. And she gives a little summary of what it is that, uh, that, that people say. This is line 408. Some men sign, we desire to be fire. Also, we desire to have rapire of divers stranger men. Also, we love to have lust in bed, and often we desire to wed. Thus, ye men not ken. Yet we desire another manner thing, to be holden not old, but fresh and young, with flattering and glozing and quaint jing. So ye may us women ever win of what ye wole a crave. Think carefully about that stanza. What is she saying? How is she setting up her answer? Do you notice any differences in her summary here and the little summary that we get of the answers they've heard before? Marta? Well, she, she kind of includes a lot of the things that they say before, but she begins her answer by saying, some men say that we like this. And they did say, some men say, they said. Right, right. Yeah, and I think, is it just me, or in Ragnall's version, is there more of an emphasis on men there? That this is, here is the masculine opinion on what women must want. Does that seem right? What does she say? What, what's her main emphasis here? What does she dwell on most? Right, right. Yeah, not, and not only, because of course the previous one focused on superficial things, that is, to have nice clothes, for instance, but, but, but this is superficial in a different sense, right? That is, women want to hear that, they're, that they look young and pretty. That doesn't talk about, they, they want to be young and pretty. They want to hear somebody flatter them in this particular way. Women like that particular kind of flattery, she says. But notice, the way she, where she goes from this is not, this is what women want. What she's focusing on is, this is what men think women want. Notice how she contextualizes it. So ye men may us women ever win of what ye wole crava. How is she deducing what men think women want? Based on what set of data? By the things that men do towards women. Yes, yes. How do you know what men think women want? Well, based on how they flatter them in order to try to get them to do what they want. If a man is trying to seduce a woman and convince her to sleep with him, what does he say to convince her? That shows you not, of course, what women actually want, but it does show you what the man thinks she wants. And that's how she finally contextualizes it. This is what men say to women. So she takes that initial idea, but she kind of turns it. And this is, I think, also why we can see her emphasis is far more heavily on the sexual stuff. Not just women, you know, like a lusty man to hug and kiss him effectively, but women like to have repair of diverse men. They, a, you know, a, a woman's, you know, number one desire, there are some, some men will say that a woman's number one desire is to, like, be able to have any guy she wants whenever she wants, you know. Diversity and inclusion in sexual appetite, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's very different from the kind of thing that we're told, you know, the men, women, and livestock told Gawain and, and Arthur, but uh, they, in this context, the way that she's spinning it, it's much sort of nastier, and then she turns it around. But, but, 
Here's what women really want. What do women really want exactly? According to Dame Ragnar? Sovereignty of men. Sovereignty. In what sense? Is this, is Dame Ragnall making a feminist argument? What women want is equality in the workplace, equal salaries with men. No, sovereignty. They want better salaries than men. They want to be, they want to be you know, in management and, and supervise men. Probably not. What does she mean? How does she explain this? Sovereignty in what sense? Well, let's look at what she says then. Line 420. There is one thing is all ur fantasia, and that nu shall yek nua. We desiren of men above all manner thing to have the sovereignty without lazing of all, both he and lua. For where we have sovereignty, all is uris, though knecht be never so fairest and ever the mastery winner. Of the most manliest is our desire to have the sovereignty of such a seer, such is our craft and dinner. What do you make of that? What does she emphasize in her description of the nature of this desire? She sees. Want, well, she says sovereignty without lies. Like she doesn't want the tricks and manipulation, the, the fake flattery. That's a great point. I think that that, that phrase, without lazing, can sound like a toss-off phrase. You know, like the kind of tag phrases that we see all the way through, like, I'm telling you the truth when I tell you this, right? It almost sounds like this. This is what women want, without lazing. One could read that as simply saying, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth. No lie, here's what the answer is. But I think you're right, Kathy. There's, a, there's an interesting double sense there. It's not just, I'm not going to lie, they want sovereignty. But they want sovereignty without lying. This, of course, was one of the complaints very often made in anti-feminist diatribes in other medieval romances when people complain, oh, like women, you can never trust them and they're always manip- manipulating you and lying to you and, and you just can't trust anything they say and they're always trying to get the upper hand and they usually win. Like that's a kind of complaint that one hears men in romances often make. Um, so I think that it, we can hear an emphasis there. No, no, no. I want straight up sovereignty. Not manipulative sovereignty. If it's not manipulative, then it seems to imply that she just wants, like, pure loyalty or something. Now, that's the question. Notice the terms. How does she describe the the man here when she talks about sovereignty? Jordan, what do you notice? Well, I noticed she's uh, describing a night where, you know, gives and wins prizes a lot or so. I thought it was because that's what all other describes as Gawain. Yes. If you were home and I didn't have a prize. Yes. So it, it seems to me they want to have like a field status. They want to be the king of them tonight. Yeah. And she characterizes the men in question here over whom women would desire to have something. Be he never so fierce. No matter how strong, brave, no matter how many tournament prizes he's won, We want to have the sovereignty over him, right? So that he doesn't, he doesn't have authority through those things. He may be big, strong, fierce, courageous. That's all cool. But at the end of the day, we want, I want, want sovereignty over him, over the manliest of them. Those are the terms that she uses. And it does not seem to be that she is explicit. It kind of sounds like Arthur's not got her exactly right here. She's not just wanting sexual dominance over somebody. Um, She seems to be interested in more than that. Now, I agree. Um, 
what Christine, was it you earlier said that, that I mean that would be a subset of the kind of sovereignty that she describes? Yeah, yes it would, it would. So, I mean it's not, that's a, that's a perk. Um, but it's certainly not the focus. Again, you notice Arthur is himself making the same assumptions about women that she accuses men in general of making about women, right? She says, men, you are assuming that women are all about the sex. Arthur, like you were assuming my request for Gawain was all about the sex, right? She's not explicitly accusing him of that, but we can certainly see that overlap there. Where do we have sovereignty? All is urus. What do you make of that? There's a line that was taken before that. What do you make of that line? What does that mean? It almost sounds like like a kingdom or I don't know. Somewhere else to say it. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All your manliness are belong to us. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the word sovereignty, I mean, we can't get around the fact that's a, that's a weighted word, a politically weighted word. Um, it's especially since she's talking to, to King Arthur here, right? Um, we want rule. We want sovereignty. And all things shall be ours. That doesn't mean, like, you know, I mean, he, he can still be fierce. He can still, he can still uh, win the maestri over other knights. He can still get prizes. But it shall all be mine. I... I What's your impression here? Does this sound sinister? I mean, one could see Dame Ragnall, you know, as, as like crusader for women's rights, right? Medieval proto-feminist. One could do that reading. Um, hey, let's put the shoe on the other foot here, boys, right? You've had the sovereignty all along, but you enjoy that, don't you? Well, what women really want a little bit of sovereignty for ourselves. One can make that argument. Is this an anti-feminist argument? Now we peer into the vicious heart of women and we see what they really want is complete dominion, right? And to enslave men. To which the audience, which was, you know, nudging each other and har-haring before, is now saying, ah, see? I knew it. <laughs> What do you think? Where do you, how does it hit you? I mean, I've, I've given like two extreme different possible readings of it, but you know, where on that spectrum does it, does it strike you? Duncan? Uh, I, think it's, I don't think she's trying to enslave anybody. I mean, I think she wants everybody to enjoy being rolled over. I don't even know what <laughs> 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 seems like it's a little too, too strict. Yeah, it seems like everybody should have fun. <laughs> right. We're just, I'm just about spreading around the fun. You know, that, that's Dame, Dame Ragnall. She's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more fun for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, this is especially since it's explicitly a reversal. I mean, the kind of sovereignty she describes is the legal sovereignty that men already have over their wives. Um, so it's not like she's going, you know, making something crazy up. She's just saying, let's, let's flip it around. Right? Beth, what were you thinking? Uh, I was going to just like, say the opposite. It, it sounded to me like she just wanted like, to control. Um. <laughs> it's, it's not hard to read it that way. Emily? I kind of read it as um, she wanted the women to have the control like they deserve as a nice lover. Because when a knight fights, like a good knight fights, he's doing it for a lady, unless it's been a man. But other than that, his good knight fights, he's doing it for a woman or you know, make her happy, save her, or whatever. 
And, you know, she gets honored for that. And if you're going to be, like, unloyal, if you're going to, like, be running around fighting her, 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 that's, that's crap. That's no good. Yeah. And I think, Emily, you bring up a really important thing. From the beginning of the whole courtly love tradition in the Middle Ages, which is well advanced uh, by this time, that language of sovereignty has always been used of the man towards the woman. Um, when a man speaks to a woman in the courtly love tradition, he tends to use, in fact, explicitly politicized feudal language. You are my lord, like I am as your vassal, and you come in. And, and this, is, this is actually one of the things that the, the, why the kiss was so significant. A mouth-to-mouth kiss was part of the ritual of, of, of the feudal agreement. Um, when, you, when you entered into a feudal contract with your king, you would seal that, that compact with a, with, a, with a mouth-to-mouth kiss with your king. They were way less squeamish about mouth-to-mouth kisses uh, with friends, family, uh, and people of the same gender under non-sexualized circumstances than we are. Um, but that, but that, that was... The, so the man asking for a kiss, the kiss of promise from his lady, um, that sort of gate-opening kiss, which is sort of a down payment on what he hopes is going to come later, that idea is based initially on the feudal model. Um, I'm, t- I'm taking you as my, 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 my lady. Sometimes even the masculine lord was used uh, in languages like French or Latin. Um, I'm, I'm taking you as my lord. Um, so can I have the, the, well, let's seal this feudal bargain with a kiss, right? Um, except it's a little charged a little differently than the kiss with your king. But, um, but anyway, so, so Emily is right to remind us that this, that dynamic is typical for knights and ladies. It isn't for husbands and wives. Um, and she wants to marry him and be his sovereign. That's different, right? So, so I think it's, it, 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 is, it is a good reminder that this is not totally alien language um, and, or a crazy idea that women should have sovereignty over men. Um, but real sovereignty and keep it even over their husbands, that's a little unorthodox. See you on Friday. Friday, we will look at Gawain's interactions with Dame Ragnall. Okay, for next time, finish Dame Ragnall and see how the actual wedding works out. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.